A commonly prescribed blood thinner can cause a serious, even fatal condition known as HIT. HIT is a dangerous disease, and despite us knowing about it for decades, we still have a lot of additional work to do. On today's show, we'll hear from a local researcher who's working diligently on new treatments and tools for diagnosing HIT. Advances in both diagnosis and treatment will greatly help diminish the impact this disease has. And later, we'll hear about a new public awareness campaign that can make you a hero in an emergency situation. You see somebody that's bleeding to death, don't be scared. Be empowered to help because you can make an impact and save somebody's life you know, in a very easy way. We're learning about a blood disorder and how to stop the bleed inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions in advancing biomedical research and finding new drugs, treatments, therapeutics, and interventions that are better, faster, and more economical than ever. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Oftentimes, when patients undergo surgical or other therapeutic procedures, they're administered an anticoagulant, a medication to help prevent the formation of blood clots or break down existing clots in the blood. While blood clots can create serious, even deadly health risks, the reality is that sometimes an anticoagulant used to prevent or break down clots can itself pose risks as well. Dr. Anand Padmanabhan is Medical Director, Transfusion Medicine and Associate Investigator at Blood Center of Wisconsin and Associate Professor of Pathology at Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Anand is a leading researcher in just such a condition, known as HIT, a disease that occurs in some patients who are administered the anticoagulant known as heparin. So what is heparin? Dr. Anand tells us. Heparin is a very commonly used blood thinner. It's a very cheap drug and a very effective drug. The source of heparin, interestingly, is from pig intestine. So a lot of the heparin that we use in this country actually comes from overseas, typically China, India, and other countries. How long has heparin been around? Heparin was discovered by researchers more than 100 years ago, but people began to understand that it might have uses in medicine over the next few decades. And by, I would say, the 40s and 50s, it was very clear that this has roles in both prevention of blood clots that can occur in patients that are in the hospital and also given to patients who do develop clots. So it has both a preventative use as well as a therapeutic or treatment use. Andy said heparin's use is common. How common? It's estimated that in the United States, a third of patients hospitalized, so about 12 million people, get heparin in some way or the other. So it could be during surgery, it could be during dialysis in patients that have kidney failure, or it could be as simple as someone's coming into the hospital for some kind of a medical or surgical procedure. They need a catheter or a line placed in their veins so that the vein does not clot off. They instill a small amount of heparin. So it's very, very commonly used. It's probably one of the most 
most commonly used drugs in the hospital. Although generally considered a safe drug, there can be risks with heparin. Like any anticoagulant, the risks of heparin are bleeding. Obviously, the goal is here to prevent clots. Now, if you have too much heparin on board, you can certainly bleed. But Dr. Anand says there's another side effect with heparin that doesn't involve bleeding. It's a condition known as heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Whew, that's a mouthful, huh? Well, fortunately, Dr. Anand breaks it down for us. The more severe or more worrisome side effect of heparin really is heparin-induced thrombocytopenia. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia has a commonly used acronym called HIT because, you know, it's really a mouthful. It is very rare for bleeding to be a problem in HIT, despite the fact that in its name you see thrombocytopenia, which means low platelet count. In HIT, what happens is there is a drop in the platelet count, except that it's pretty significant. Classically, a patient would come in with a normal count. A normal platelet count is typically between about 150 and 450,000. They will receive heparin in some form, and one or two weeks later, the platelet counts dropped to less than half Typically, platelet counts do not fall below 40 or 50,000. Now, at that level, there really is no risk for bleeding. Only when you get very, very low, 10 or 20,000 or so, is the risk of bleeding. So if the drop in platelet count doesn't result in bleeding, what does it result in? The problem really in HIT is paradoxical thrombosis or paradoxical clotting. So when platelet counts fall, you would think that they're at risk for bleeding. But that is not the case in HIT. In HIT, the platelet counts fall and they're at risk for clotting. And they can clot up any part of the body. Most commonly, we see clots in the deep veins of the legs. We see clots in the lung called a pulmonary embolism. And we've certainly seen clots in both arms. We've seen strokes occur as a result of this. And so these can have a variety of serious consequences because of the clotting phenomenon. Now, Dr. Anand says it's important to point out that there are, in fact, two types of heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, one that's not serious at all and another that's very serious. He explains the difference, beginning with the far less serious type 1 hit. Type 1 hit is a temporary phenomenon where there's a small but significant drop in platelet count. I'll give you an example. Let's say a patient has a platelet count of about 300,000. You put that patient on heparin. The counts may drop just a little bit. There's an immediate rebound in the platelet count back to baseline levels, and there's really no permanent or long-term consequence of that drop. Compared to type 2 hit, type 2 hit, which is the hit that's really serious, you have a significant drop in the platelet count, most typically a fall of greater than 50%. And that is the form of hit that is associated with these dangerous clots or thrombosis. So are there genetic markers that indicate which patients might be more susceptible to developing HIT, whether type 1 or type 2? You know, that's a very interesting question. It would be very impactful if we know the answer to that, because then we could select who the patients are that we can give heparin safely to and avoid giving heparin to those who might be at risk. Unfortunately, as of today, there are no clear markers, genetic or otherwise, that tell us who will develop HIT. However, he says that research has identified specific circumstances where the development of HIT is more likely. What we have learned from several studies is that patients in certain settings are more likely to have HIT. For example, patients who have surgical procedures are more likely to have HIT than those that are in the hospital for medical type settings. Patients who have cardiac surgery and are placed on what's called a heart-lung machine 
are more likely to develop it than others who may not have surgical interventions. That's not always clearly helpful to determine, you know, who's going to have hit or not, but when one sees heparin exposure in those settings and sees a platelet count drop, it should alert the caregiver, the physician, to think about hit diagnosis for that condition. Speaking of diagnosis, Dr. Anand says for hit, it comes with some significant challenges. But that's something that he and others are working very hard to change. The diagnosis of HIT is a major challenge, and this has been an interest of mine for some time. In addition to caring for patients with HIT, I'm also a trained physician in lab medicine, and it's an area that has been of interest to me for quite a while. So how is HIT discovered in a patient that's been given heparin? There are basically two varieties of assays, or tests, which are used. One is a very commonly used test, used in numerous hospitals, which is called the PF4 heparin ELISA. A pretty simple test where you take a blood sample from the patient, add it to a plate, which will run a certain reaction, and within a matter of two to three hours, you get a result. So that's the easy-to-run assay, and there are numerous versions of these, five, six, or more different kits approved by the FDA that different hospitals in the country run. But while the PF4 assay he mentions is easy to use, it's hardly ideal for both ruling out and confirming whether a patient does indeed have HIT. It's a great test to rule out HIT. If the test result is negative, you can be quite sure that the patient does not have HIT. Unfortunately, though, if the results are positive, there's probably only a 50% chance that the person has hit. In other words, you get a positive result, but you're not sure if truly that positive result means that the patient has disease. Next, Dr. Anand tells us about another test called the serotonin release assay, or SRA but it has its own set of challenges for diagnosing HIT. There are about five large labs in the United States, Blood Center Wisconsin being one of them, that offers a gold standard assay for HIT diagnosis called the serotonin release assay. Now the SRA is accurate, however the major challenge is technical complexity such that if you had a patient in New York City and you send a sample out for testing, it's several days before you get the results back. So the challenge today in HIT is the easy-to-do assays are inaccurate and the accurate assays are so technically complex that very few labs run it. So there's a clear need for a in-hospital test that's both accurate and that a general lab technologist in a hospital lab is able to run. Further complicating the diagnosis is the fact that there are many conditions that can mimic HIT. If you go to the ICU at one of the hospitals, you will note that a large number of patients have low platelet counts or thrombocytopenia. Now these are patients that may have had trauma, injury, they may have sepsis, which can certainly cause low platelet counts, and all of these patients may have been exposed to heparin. So it's a huge challenge to understand, is this low platelet count related to another medical process that's going on that is causing the platelet counts to fall, or is it heparin-induced thrombocytopenia? So there are a large number of patients that are suspected of HIT, but only a small percentage of those suspected of HIT actually have HIT. How small of a percentage? Exactly how common is HIT? It occurs, I would say, in about 0.2 to 1% of heparin-treated patients. If you take 200 to 400 patients who get heparin, 
roughly one patient will actually have true HIT. So then, is it technically considered rare? HIT is classified as a rare disease by the NIH. The NIH says if a disease is less than 200,000 per year in the U.S. population, it's rare. And certainly, HIT fits that definition. We now know that HIT is both rare and difficult to diagnose. So how is it treated? The first thing to do when you suspect someone is HIT is to stop the heparin. Now, heparin is a drug that has a very short ability to remain in the human body. So when you stop heparin, roughly within half a day, it's eliminated from the system. Great, so you stop the heparin, it's quickly eliminated from the body. Risk for HIT is stopped, right? Well, no. It turns out... Pathogenic antibody, the harmful substance in the blood of patients, can cause HIT well after heparin is gone. In fact, in many patients, we see that the first clot occurs days or perhaps even weeks after the heparin has been stopped. Then how is HIT and the threat of thrombosis, or excessive clotting, treated after the heparin has been stopped? So the first step again is to stop the heparin. The second step is these individuals with these antibodies, these pathogenic molecules, are at high risk for thrombosis. So we put the patient on a bunch of alternative anticoagulants. So these are blood thinners that are not HIT or HIT-like that can hopefully help prevent the thrombosis from occurring. Dr. Anad says in severe cases, type 2 HIT can be fatal. In fact, he and a team of researchers have just published findings on the mortality rate. So how does that rate look? Does type 2 HIT have a high disease burden? Well, that's a really great question. What we did recently was we looked at a large U.S. national database called the Nationwide Inpatient Sample, or NIS, which is maintained by the Agency for Healthcare Quality. We noted that in the U.S. about 20,000 people develop it every year, and 2,000 of those 20,000, so roughly 10% die. A 10% mortality is a pretty high mortality, and we have certainly seen multiple deaths just in our community here. We have seen numerous amputations among patients that develop HIT, and the thrombosis burden was significant. It was 30%. So one in three HIT patients will develop a clot. There's another significant burden HIT creates for patients, a financial one. We found that on average, the charges for a HIT patient were four times greater than in someone who is hospitalized and does not develop HIT. So there's huge medical costs in terms of clots, bleeding, amputations, and death, as well as major economic costs, both to the health system and to the patient. Now, Dr. Anna told us earlier about two existing assays or tests for HIT, one that's not reliable in diagnosing it, and one that that's too complex for widespread use in hospitals. So he and a team of researchers have been developing a new diagnostic assay which utilizes a protein known as PF4. Stands for platelet factor 4, which is a protein that's contained in alpha granular platelets and can bind to the surface of the platelet through molecules that are heparin-like. These are not heparin, but heparin-like molecules that we all have on our platelet surfaces. When that occurs, it creates the perfect binding site for these bad pathogenic antibodies and results in platelet activation. When we made that finding, we wondered if we could leverage that information and build a new diagnostic assay. That's what the PEA is. PEA stands for PF4-dependent P-selectin expression assay, and I'll explain that. PF4-dependent means in the assay you need PF4. P-selectin is a simple marker of platelet activation. So if P-selectin shows up on the platelet surface, it means the platelet has been activated. He explains how the PEA works. 
what this assay is, is you take some normal platelets, you add some PF4, and you add the sample of the patient who's suspected of HIT. If the sample has these HIT antibodies, it will bind to these PF4-treated platelets and activate the platelets, and we have pretty simple tools to examine if the platelet surface expresses P-selectin. It's a very simple concept in a pretty rapid assay. From start to finish, it takes about two to three hours, as opposed to about roughly double the time that the SRA takes. Dr. Anad and his research team have been busy testing the PEA assay for diagnosing HIT. He tells us that so far... We developed this sort of prototype test. Patients that we knew received heparin, some of them had HIT and some of them did not. And the results were very, very promising and very clearly told us, based on this new PEA assay, who had the hit and who did not. And then step two, we ran the PEA in parallel with the gold standard SRA. To our surprise, the PEA has an accuracy which is even a little better than the SRA. Building on those results, we're in the final stages of examining exactly the diagnostic utility off the PEA. So it's a multi-institutional partnership between Milwaukee, Mayo Clinic, and the University of Washington in Seattle. Assuming that the PEA assay continues to prove equal to or superior to the current gold standard assay, what does Dr. Anand hope happens next? My expectation is that labs such as the Blood Center Wisconsin's diagnostic labs will internally validate this assay to offer as a clinical test. So I hope that roughly within a year, Blood Center Wisconsin or perhaps other labs are able to offer this for patient testing. And after that? This will be an important advance to offer the PEA. However, it still requires a lab with some level of sophistication and expertise. So one of my goals is to try to translate this technology into a little kit that will go out to the hospital that a general lab technologist would be able to take a simple blood sample mix it up based upon the directions included in the kit to achieve a meaningful result. Dr. Anad's research on the PEA assay is funded in part by a grant from the CTSI, and he says that type of support is invaluable to his research. Well, the CTSI of Southeastern Wisconsin has just been hugely important in this research, and I cannot possibly overemphasize the importance that the CTSI has had in not only the basic aspects of my research, research and understanding what these hit antibodies do and how they do what they do, but also in helping me translate these findings to a revolutionary new assay, the sort of paradigm shifting on how we think of diagnosing hit. Andy says that the CTSI is continuing to support his research work for big things to come. CTSI has also funded some work that my lab has become recently interested in, which is what might be ways to perhaps treat this disease. This is a bad disease with a 10% mortality rate. And some recent observations that we made based upon testing in a test tube and also off-label use in patients who were in desperate need for treatment. These patients may have otherwise died. And so the CTSI has helped us understand some of the mechanisms involved in hip pathogenesis. And I suspect that I will be working with them in the future on hip treatment. Finally, what if you're prescribed heparin as part of your medical treatment? Should you be concerned? Heparin is a great drug. It's one of the most useful drugs we have. It's exceptionally affordable, and it's a very effective drug. But any drug, including heparin, has side effects. 
I would say listeners shouldn't be overly concerned, but should be aware that this potentially dangerous side effect can occur with heparin. That's Dr. Anand Padmanabhan, Medical Director, Transfusion Medicine, and Associate Investigator at Blood Center of Wisconsin and Associate Professor of Pathology at Medical College of Wisconsin. In Wisconsin and throughout the U.S., injury leads to more premature deaths than heart disease or even cancer. In fact, injury is the leading cause of death for individuals between the ages of 1 and 44 years old. Because injuries can happen to anyone, anytime, anywhere, a public awareness campaign is gaining traction throughout our country to educate people how to prevent someone from bleeding to death in the event of an emergency situation. It's called Stop the Bleed. And we recently had the pleasure of talking to one of the key people leading the campaign in our community and across our state. Dr. Christopher Davis is a trauma surgeon and assistant professor of surgery at Fredert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. And he begins by sharing the origins of the Stop the Bleed campaign. He says that the impetus for the initiative came as a result of the tragic school shooting at Sandy Hook, Connecticut in 2012. After that event happened, local surgeons, lawmakers, industry got together and said, hey, what can we do to improve survivability in these kind of mass casualty situations to be able to get these patients stabilized into the hospital where we can actually help? From there, the movement made its way to Washington. The White House took it upon itself to make it a nationwide agenda to teach all citizens how to save lives from bleeding. And after that happened, the American College of Surgeons developed a formal program called Stop the Bleed. Now, as a nationwide first aid awareness campaign, Stop the Bleed has a call to action for each of us. The call to action is for everybody to be trained on very basic principles in the event to be an immediate bystander to injury. And it doesn't have to just be mass casualty situations. It can be motor vehicle collisions or workplace incidents. You never know when you may be the first person that's there before emergency medical people can arrive. The Medical College of Wisconsin and Fredert Hospital have taken a major role in helping to spread the Stop the Bleed campaign throughout our state. As the only adult level one trauma center in our area, Fredert is uniquely qualified to lead this effort. The adult level one designation means that we not only have the surgeons 24 hours a day to take care of the trauma patients, but we also have the infrastructure. We have trained nurses, we have the emergency department, the trauma bay to be able to receive patients and patient care modalities to not only save a patient, but throughout their hospital stay and then plugging them into the right resources for recovery. Their skill and experience in emergency medicine, trauma surgery, and public health make Dr. Davis and his teammates natural leaders for sharing Stop the Bleed with the general public. Myself and my partners are all highly trained trauma surgeons, and we as a division of trauma have injury prevention and community outreach that we do. And we have roles not only with the American College of Surgeons, but with the Wisconsin Surgical Society Committee on Trauma. So more locally, it's upon us to help move the ball forward in terms of this national project. But Dr. Davis isn't suggesting it's only trauma surgeons doing the heavy lifting when it comes to spreading the word on Stop the Bleed. In fact, he says... Nationally, other entities like the National Association of Emergency Medical Technicians and other big entities also help more locally in Milwaukee. The real workhorse of Stop the Bleed is local fire, police, and paramedics. They, a lot of times, have trained individuals on how to instruct Stop the Bleed, and within their local communities, roll the program out to teach people. Which people? Dr. Davis says it's important for everybody to know how to stop bleeding in an emergency situation. 
And it's equally important to have a program that makes it easy to learn how. And that's the aim of Stop the Bleed. Anybody can learn it. And that's the way that the course is designed. As a matter of fact, just yesterday, I taught a bunch of middle school students. And they were very receptive and they were very capable going through the course. And so I think if we can train middle school students, then assuredly we can teach the rest of the population. It's not a very difficult set of steps to understand. Okay, so then what are the steps in learning how to stop the bleed? It's great that you asked that because that's probably the most important question of all. How do you stop life-threatening hemorrhage? If somebody's bleeding to death in front of you, what can you do to help? And it's simple. In fact, he says it's as simple as remembering your ABCs. A. Alert somebody. Call for help. Call 911. The first thing is to make sure that first responders are coming because if you don't call 911, nobody may come to help you. B, find where the bleeding is coming from. So you have to expose the area of injury, pulling off garments or cutting them off so you can actually see where the bleeding is coming from. And C, compress the bleeding wound. Old-fashioned fallback teaching is just put pressure on that wound. You can use anything nearby to put on that wound and put pressure. Okay, let's see if I'm as smart as a middle school student. The first step is A, alert someone. Call 911. Get emergency responders on the scene as soon as possible. The second step is B. Bleeding. Identify where exactly the bleeding is coming from. Then do the next step, which is C. Compress the bleeding wound and keep compressing it until emergency help arrives. The ABC components of Stop the Bleed really are simple and easy to remember. The real challenge, Dr. Davis says, is going about the monumental task of making them common knowledge to help save lives throughout our state and across our country. Because you got to think about the massive endeavor that it may take to train everybody. That's hundreds of millions of people. So you got to start somewhere. And what most people have been trying to do nationally is at least start with the schools teach school staff on how to stop life-threatening hemorrhage, and hopefully we can start teaching kids graduating from high school, just like we are with CPR. This is the first year that CPR is being taught by law in Wisconsin. So it's kind of piggybacking on that, and it's not complicated. It should be part of basic first aid training. And after schools... The next steps are going to be to try to engage corporations, teaching employees, because they could be an immediate bystander either at their work or at home. Also, we have a community education program through Freighter where anybody can sign up for courses for free. Is there a certification for Stop the Bleed training? Dr. Davis says there is, even though the training is not as robust as other first aid training. Because... Well, it doesn't need to be. Which is twofold. One, it's not that complicated, so you don't really need a certificate to prove that you did it. But the other thing, too, is because it's so simple, you don't need to be recertified. The way that course is taught should stick in people's minds forever. Is the Stop the Bleed training memorable and effective? Early indications are... It is. We do surveys to find out how well the course is received. And people almost across the board say that they found the information very useful, that they would recommend it to others, and that they feel a lot more comfortable and empowered to do something should they be a bystander of injury. You can expect to hear more about Stop the Bleed, both through public service announcements and through community outreach efforts like this one, when Dr. Davis and his team joined forces with another local team. We teamed up with the Milwaukee Bucks to have a game day activation. And during that, we taught people at the game the basic components of hemorrhage control. We also engaged the Bucks to have 
Bango do a public service announcement. As far as I know, the Milwaukee Bucks are the only NBA team to do that. So it's kind of cool that we're at the forefront of those community outreach efforts. Another major victory came recently when the Wisconsin Legislature and Senate approved Assembly Joint Resolution 111, which officially recognizes Stop the Bleed throughout the state. If you can get the state engaged at this, then the next step is to get state funding, laws to make this a requirement to be taught in schools, and the effort is much more widespread, impactful, sustainable, so that our efforts continue forth. And it's particularly noteworthy that the joint resolutions passed unanimously with bipartisan support. That's reflective of how much of a no-brainer the program is. It doesn't matter your political background, your ethnic background, your racial background, or where you come from on Earth. These basic principles can come in handy for anybody. And I think that's why our lawmakers voted unanimously to pass this, to say, hey, this is a solution to a problem, and it doesn't matter who you are. We all bleed red. We do indeed. They say if you donate blood, you're a hero. And that's true. But you can also be a hero by saving someone from bleeding to death. Don't be scared. Be empowered to help because you can make an impact and save somebody's life you know, in a very easy way. If you want to learn more about Stop the Bleed, there's two places to go. One is bleedingcontrol.org, and then the freighter.com website. All you have to do is go to freighter.com and look for Stop the Bleed. We'll be sure to post links on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. But for now, we need to put a stop to this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Once again, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Anand Padmanabhan, Medical Director, Transfusion Medicine and Associate Investigator at Blood Center of Wisconsin and Associate Professor of Pathology at Medical College of Wisconsin, and Dr. Christopher Davis, Trauma Surgeon and Assistant Professor of Surgery at Freydert and the Medical College of Wisconsin and State Leader of the Stop the Bleed campaign. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.